And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible so that you can follow along with us in our study. We left off in the middle of chapter 12. We'll be picking up in verse 17. And chapter 12 talks to us about the order of worship for the nation of Israel. And what Moses has said to the people thus far in the chapter is that they were not allowed to just worship however and wherever they wanted to. They were not to just do whatever was right in their own eyes and just worship the Lord uh, casually as ever they wanted. But worship for Israel was very much centered around a place. Ultimately, that place became Jerusalem, the place where the temple was built, and that was where the people were to bring their offerings and to bring their tithes and bring their gifts and and the sacrifices that they were required to make, and they would bring them there then uh, to Jerusalem where they were to worship. So worship in the Old Testament was, was, was very much about the place where they would go. Now, in the New Testament, not so. In John chapter 4, Jesus was going from the region of Galilee, and he was making his way to Jerusalem, and he was passing through Samaria, which was in between the northern and the southern parts of the country there. And so he goes through Samaria, and it happened at a time that he sent his disciples to go get some supplies, and he was sitting there by a well, and a Samaritan woman came, and and Jesus had a conversation with her there. And in the course of their conversation, Jesus brought up some things that were going on in that woman's life. He said, go and call your husband here. And she said, I have no husband, Lord. And he said, I know, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. And she said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well said, you know. But what she immediately then began to do was to make the worship of God about a place. She said, our fathers teach that we should worship here on this mountain and You know, the Jews teach that Jerusalem is the right place. And she tried to draw Jesus into a debate about where the proper place to worship is. And Jesus said to her, he said that the time is coming when they that worship the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. That they will worship in spirit. That there's a time coming when the Spirit of God is going to dwell with men and that it will no longer be in a place, whether it's this mountain or in Jerusalem, but the presence of God will be with the people of God and so they will worship in spirit and the place will be irrelevant. And so for the believer in the New Testament, where we worship is not the issue. However, Jesus didn't stop there. He said that they will worship in spirit, but also in truth. And that is, although there isn't a set place any longer where worship is required to be offered, we still don't worship God however we want. Worship must be done in truth. In other words, God tells us how he is to be worshipped and who he is, and we don't make those things up for ourselves. And so we worship in spirit wherever we are, 
but we worship in truth according to what he has said. And so worship in the New Testament is different than it is in the Old. However, there still is a place for a place. In other words, there's still a purpose for you and I to gather as we are now. And so we talked about that last week, that that for doctrinal accountability, for distinction in our lives and setting some time apart that is just the Lord's and not the Lord and something else, and also for obedience because he's asked us to do this, to gather together. We still do come together and congregate, but it isn't exclusive that this is the only time that we can worship God is when we're in church. And so that brings us up to where we left off at the end of verse 16. And now as we come to verse 17, we get on to the topic of tithing, everyone's favorite subject. And so in verse 17, he says, You may not eat within thy gates the tithe of thy corn or of thy wine or of thy oil or the firstlings of thy herds or of thy flock, nor any of thy vows which thou vowedst, nor thy freewill offerings or heave offerings of thy hand. But you must eat them before the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the Levite that is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you put your hand unto. Take heed unto yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. So God says to the people that the tithe of all that you have, of all of your increase, is not yours to do what you will with, but it is mine to be brought and done with according as I prescribe. Now, the tithe, the word tithe means the tenth. And the idea behind the tithe is that the tenth of all of the increase the profit or the harvest or you know the 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 uh the gain and all that they did that one tenth of it belonged to the lord and and under the law of moses they were required to bring the tenth or the tithe unto the lord the 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 tenth of the increase of whatever it was if they were uh you know herdsmen then it would be of the flocks if they were uh you know, farmers, they would bring it of the grain if they made it in money or in real estate or in whatever it was, they were to bring the tenth of it to the Lord. Now, the debate in the church today is, is tithing still required by God? Is it still the law that in the New Testament that we are to tithe? And, you know, the reason for that debate, obviously, is because of the abuse and, uh, it, you know, the, the problems that, that come associated uh, with that. And so what are the facts about tithing and the church or tithing and the Christian? Well, first of all, and I'll give you four facts, things that you can think through biblically that you can pray in uh, concerning your own uh, thing. First of all, tithing transcends the law. The first mention of tithing is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. And Abraham there had just returned from the slaughter of the kings, and he had taken a great spoil from the battle there after he had just rescued Lot. And he was met by Melchizedek, who is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And as he was there, it says that Abraham gave to him tithes of all, or a tenth of all. 
And that's the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. It's the precedent that's set forth. That was then passed on to Isaac and Jacob. We read about it in their lives as well. And so the first thing that we discover is that tithing in the lives of God's people is something that existed prior to the giving of the law. Now, under the Mosaic Covenant, it was law. They were required to, but we see that it existed before the law. Number two is that tithing also transcends, I mean, I'm sorry, outlives the law. In the ministry of Jesus, just before he would go to the cross, when he was having one of those uh, Pharisee bashing sessions there, Matthew chapter 23, he said to them in verse 23, he said, you tithe of your mint and your anise and your cumin and your spices and, and, and he says, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and, and all the rest. And then he says, these you ought to have done, but not to have left the other undone. In other words, Jesus established the principle, not as something that was perishing or that would die, but as something that they were to do. And so tithing outlives the law. However, number three, tithing also breaks the law. You say, what do you mean tithing breaks the law? Well, in the law, it's clear in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, the law said, Jesus said, or I'm sorry, Moses wrote, he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus quoted that when he was fighting uh, there in um, Matthew chapter 4, that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. However, there's an interesting verse in Malachi chapter 3. It's the only time in the Bible where God gives his people permission to test him. Let me read it to you. Malachi uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, God speaking, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts. Test me, the Lord says. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall be not room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And so God says, you have my permission to test me in this area of tithing. Is that if you will do it, then you'll see what I will do for you. And so tithing breaks the law. And then number four, tithing is not law. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul gives to us the principle for New Testament giving. And here it is. He says this. He says, Every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly, meaning that you don't want to do it, but you feel like you have to, or you're obliged to, or you're being forced to. It's not to be under that nor out of necessity, is that you should never give because you feel like if you don't, that you're going to let God down or let the church down or in some way something's not going to carry forth in God's plan because you aren't giving. That shouldn't be your motivation. 
not grudging, not out of necessity. He says, why? For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And so the New Testament Christian is not under an obligation, biblically, to tithe. It's not something that we are under the law to do. The New Testament principle is that we are to give according to how God has prospered us and how we've purposed in our heart and how we can give with with hilarity, cheerfulness, and with joyfulness. And so that's the New Testament concept. You say, okay, well, what's the purpose for it? If, if we're going to talk the tithe because we see it still there, it still exists, and, and we see it, what's the purpose for it? Why? I mean, if ultimately it wouldn't be law, then why does God require it or call for it or, or ask us to give? Is God like we so often hear in Christian circles or Christian TV, is God broke? Is God really filing chapter 11 and if we don't write our check or give our share that God's going to go under and the kingdom of God is going to go bankrupt? Absolutely not. The Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And God himself declares through the prophet, he says that if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you is that he is able through his own sufficiency to provide every need that he would have or that his kids would have at any time in any way that he chooses. And so the purpose of our giving to God is not because he needs it. Giving is not for God. Giving is for us. God knows as he is raising kids that he has to teach us to give ourselves away. And every time we give of our substance, that which we've worked for, we're giving a little bit of ourselves away. And so it's not God's way of raising cash. It's God's way of raising kids. And so he calls us to give because he's a faithful father. And that's what he asks us to do. Not only that, but he has also ordained it that those that serve in the ministry would be supported in that way. Notice there in verse 19 there in Deuteronomy again. He says, Take heed to yourself that you forsake not the Levite as long as you live upon the earth. The Levites wouldn't have a portion with the rest of the people. They would be supported by the offerings of the other tribes, the other people. And God ordained it to be that way. And he ordains that in the New Testament as well is that those that minister in the things of God are supported by those things. And you say, well, why would God do it that way? Because again, he's so wise. Because he knew that it would keep his ministers humble. It's a very humbling thing for a man to be supported by the offerings of other people. And God knew that a minister that would represent him rightly would need to be clothed in humility. And so he set it forth that way on purpose. And sometimes there is. It's very humbling to be in that position, you know. But God knows that we need to be humble, us ministers, because we have a tendency to be lifted up in pride. And so God made it that way on purpose, that it would always be in our mind. Also, it makes us very sensitive to people. It makes us pay attention to, to, to what people are going through and, and, and that we aren't harsh or abusive with them because we understand that hey, these people are helping us as we help them. 
And so it's the wisdom of God that he designed it that way. So you say, well, well, should I tithe? I mean, that's the real question that I have after looking at this, you know, hearing you say these things. Should I tithe? The answer is you pray about what God would have you to do and what he would have you to give. I can tell you from personal experience that I'm a firm believer that Malachi chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 works. I remember hearing Chuck Smith years ago when I first got saved, talking about that passage of scripture, and he said, he said, these were, he just read it, and he goes, his, his whole exhortation was, he said, try it, you'll like it. <laughs> and, and, and me and Georgia, since the time that we've got saved, we can bear witness with that, that God has always met our needs. He's always been faithful, even when uh, it didn't make sense to us. So there you go. You, got it, that you won't hear about that again in this church, probably for a couple years, uh, because we only talk about it when we come to it in the scriptures. And so uh, that's Moses' two cents on that. And then for the rest of the chapter, verses 20, well, not the rest, uh, verses 20 all the way through 28, he basically repeats what he said back over in verses 8 through 16. So you can read that on your own, basically, that they were allowed to eat meat, but they weren't allowed to sacrifice except in Jerusalem, and they were to honor the blood by pouring it upon the ground. But notice with me in verse 29 now as he comes to uh, the question of how to deal with false teachers. How do we deal with false teachers? I'm sorry, false religions. We'll get to false teachers in chapter 13. He says, When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and you succeed them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that you inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so, will I do likewise. You shall not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Human sacrifice. And what thing soever I command you, observe to do it, you shall not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And so he gives to them the exhortation. He says, once you come into the land and you've been established in the promise that I've set before you, beware of the curiosity that you will have to investigate or inquire about how those nations that were dispossessed of the land, how they worshipped their gods. He warns them to beware of a fascination with other religions, with the the way that other people worship other gods. Now, there are some people in the church of Jesus Christ that really love to do this. They love apologetics, and they love to look into what other faiths teach, other religions believe, what their doctrinal points are, you know, and there is something to that, you know, there's some great books about the cults and about different things, you know, I know there's uh, Walter Martin's work, The Kingdom of the Cults, and there's different things that, 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 that are good references for us when these things arise, but, but what's our, our, our position to be or our relationship to be with other religions or with the cults? And the warning that the Bible is giving to us here is beware. Beware. He uses the word snare. He says there's a snare in it. 
And there is an inherent danger in in digging too deep into what false religions teach and what false religions believe. The first one, and it's right there in the text, is that beware that you are not snared or drawn into the air of mystique or the mystical side of what those religions claim or what they experience. It is true that there are satanic strings attached to the cults and to the false religions. There are spiritual experiences and apparitions and things that can happen under the guise of a false god or of a cult. And it is possible for a child of God to be drawn into the curiosity of wanting to maybe know more or be familiar with some of that. And he says, beware of it, because it's possible for you and I to be drawn into it and to be subverted, maybe because of something that we experience. And so he says, beware. The other thing that can snare us in this, in this realm of false religions is the sincerity of those that believe. Here, he says, look, these people are so sincere in what they're doing and in what they believe that they're willing to sacrifice their children to their gods. And it's possible for you to come to a point where you look into that and you say, that person is so much more sincere in what they believe and in what they're doing than even what I am. I would never do that. And that seeing their sincerity and something that is wrong could actually be a point of deception for you. See, sincerity is never the sign that something is true or something is false. And so God says to beware that you're not to, uh, to, to you know, give yourself in that way. Romans chapter 16, verse 19. The Apostle Paul said this to the church, and it's a great exhortation. He said, but I would have you to be wise concerning that which is good and simple concerning evil. That our relationship with what is evil or what is an abomination unto the Lord should be that of simplicity. Simplicity is the polite way of saying stupid. That concerning evil, we are to be stupid or ignorant. Well, you say, well, (coughs) excuse me, if if I'm stupid concerning those things, then what is my defense against the deception that comes from those things? Well, the answer's in the same verse. He says, be wise in that which is good. In other words, the best defense against something that's false, be it the claims of a cult or the doctrinal beliefs of a false religion, the best defense is a good offense. Know the scriptures. If you're wise concerning that which is good, You'll always have an answer point by point for those things that are brought up against us or that are contradictory to what we claim and believe through the word of God. See, it's the best way. You know the Bible and you're going to you're going to do well. You're always going to have an answer, uh, you know, for those things. When when someone works, any bankers here, anybody work for a bank, started off as a teller, you know, (laughs) by the way, we talked. No, just kidding. Um, when you work in with money, with large volumes of money, and there's always a risk for counterfeit and fraud that comes through counterfeiting currency, the way a good counterfeit detector operates is not by knowing all of the various methods of detecting counterfeit currency. 
the way they do it is that they are experts in discerning the real thing. They handle bills in the multiplied millions. They know what it feels like. They know what it looks like. They know the security features. And once you have a good handle on that, then you can detect a counterfeit anywhere. And it's the same idea, the same principle as it comes to spiritual things. You have a good handle on the truth, and you're not going to be easily deceived with what is counterfeit. And so what we're called to do is to be wise concerning that which is good, to be good students of the Scripture. Well, in chapter 13, he stays on the same vein. He adjusts his train of thought slightly as he moves from false religions now to false teachers. And with false teachers, there is a great, uh, a, a great deal larger danger. A false teacher is much more dangerous than a false religion or, or, or a false teaching. And the reason is because a false teacher might not necessarily be representing a false religion. A false teacher may be claiming Christ as Lord or using a Bible to make their points. And so a false teacher can be much more subtle. How do we deal with false teaching? Jesus said that there would be false teaching, false teachers and false Christs. Even he said the more so as the days would get later you know, coming towards his second coming. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, Jesus said that many shall come in my name saying that I am Christ and shall deceive many. Now, for years, I thought that meant that people would come and claim to be Christ. And it always confused me because I thought, well, who's going to believe that? I mean, there are some people that will believe anything, believe me. But for the most part, if someone comes around and says they're Jesus, we immediately mark them as a candidate for the loony bin. We know where they're going to end up, you know. But, but that, a sister actually in the church pointed this out to me a, a while back, is that that's not what that means, that they're going to come and say, hey, I'm Jesus. What they're going to do is they're going to come claiming that Jesus is the Christ. Many will come in my name saying that I am Christ. They're going to say, hey, Jesus, he's the Christ. And usually for you and me, when we hear that, we let our guard down. Well, this person is naming the name of Jesus. This person is claiming to follow Christ. So they must be legitimate in what they're setting forth because they are, as I am, a follower of Christ, of Jesus. But Jesus said not necessarily. There would be many that would come in my name that aren't sent by me that are counterfeits, they're not sent. Their message isn't pure. It's not legit. The New Testament, basically, and, and some people aren't going to like this. You can you know, stir in your seats a little. The New Testament classifies Christians into three categories. That's right. The New Testament classifies you and me into three categories. There are three separate categories of Christians. The one, babes, new believers, those that are just like infants. They know nothing about the faith. They're brand new. They're wet behind the ears. They don't really know much about the Lord or about his word at all. They're babes. The second is children. And then the third are the mature or those that are of full age. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul, the apostle, describes what a child in the faith is, or a Christian who is a child. He said this. He said that you should henceforth be no longer children, 
tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness of men whereby they lie in wait to deceive. (coughs) A child Christian or a Christian that is in the childhood stage of their walk with the Lord is someone who will believe what anyone toting a Bible or that is on Christian television or standing behind a pulpit or holding a Bible up, that they'll believe anything that they say. And Paul is challenging the Ephesians and obviously us as well. He's saying that we shouldn't be children that are tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but that we should speak the truth in love and that we should understand what we believe and be able to defend it and prove it through the scriptures so that we're not moved when we hear false teaching and we're not deceived by it. And so Moses here now in chapter 13 gives to us insight into how we do that. Notice with me in verse 1. He says, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder come to pass whereof he spoke unto thee. Now pause right there because if that happens, that's pretty amazing. If we're fellowshipping with someone or listening to someone or giving attendance to a ministry or a minister and they do something miraculous or they call forth a prophecy and it comes to pass and something happens supernatural as a result of their ministry. That's impressive. That usually gets our attention. It makes us perk up and pay attention. We think, well, this person has a power that I don't have. And so we're apt to listen to what it is that they have to say or believe the thing that they're teaching because they've proved it with a sign or a wonder. Well, not necessarily. Signs and wonders are never, and listen carefully, don't ever forget this. Signs, wonders, dreams, visions, supernatural things are never the evidence that God is in something. Because Satan has just as much power to do counterfeit miracles and bring forth counterfeit signs and counterfeit wonders. And he can know things that no one else could know. And he can even know things that are happening in the future. Not to the same degree that God can but certainly to enough of a degree that we might be deceived. And so those things are never to be the the mark of legitimate spiritual teaching. He goes on to say, he says, if the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoke unto thee, saying, let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve God. Them. In other words, the miracle is followed by something that doesn't line up with what you've been taught. He says, you shall not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proves you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, God will even allow you to see those things from time to time in a setting where they're not legitimate for the sake of testing, proving. Where are you at? What's going on in your life? How are these things to happen? Sometimes I talk to people and they say to me, they say, I would believe in God if God would show me a sign. If God would just somehow do something that would prove to me that he is real, I would believe in him. Well, the answer to that is, first of all, no, you wouldn't. 
I mean, that's proven biblically. I don't have time to, 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 to belabor the point, but no, you wouldn't. You would find a way to rationalize it away or you would forget about it. It wouldn't ultimately work because signs and wonders never produce faith. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's funny, I asked God for a sign when I first got saved. My sinner's prayer had an addendum in it that said, God, I need to know that you're real. I need to know that you're real. All I need to know is that you're real. If I know that you're real, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Even if I have to shave my head and go live on a mountaintop for the rest of my life, if you're real, I'll do it. And I was asking for a sign. You know what? God gave me a sign. You know what it was? He truly did. Here was the sign that God gave me. Is that two hours later, I opened my good news Catholic Bible that had been sitting on my counter dusty since I was given it at age whatever, you know. And I opened it up and it fell open to Romans chapter 1 verse 1 and I began to read. And you know what God did? Is that he helped me to understand for the first time in my life every word that I read. What before I had read it and said, what in the world is this? Why would anyone believe this? There was something that happened where when I read those words, I understood what they were saying and what they meant. And my heart came to life. And that was a sign. And that is the only sign that God will ever give. That is our safety. That's what he goes on to say, verse 4. Notice, he says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. He says to them, this is how you'll know if it's real and if it's of me, is if it lines up with what I have said to you. That's the proof if something is legitimate and if it really is of the Lord. Does it line up with what he says? That's the test. Does it line up with his word? If it lines up with his word, you're on the right track. If it in any way contradicts or steps outside of what God has revealed through his word, it's false. And you're not to believe it. And you're not to go after it. The word of God is the anchor of truth. And if you know the word of God, you won't be deceived by that which is false. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we ought to take the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We walk by faith and not by sight. Not by signs or wonders or miraculous. God can do those things and he does those things. But we don't follow those things. We follow the word of God. That's where we're safe, you see. So how do we handle it when we realize or come to the realization that there's a false teacher or false teaching? How do we, that's what he deals with for the rest of the chapter and you can read it. But basically what his exhortation to them is, is whether it's a friend or whether it's family or whether it's a whole city or a whole church, or a whole community, or a whole kingdom. 
that's teaching you something that's false. He says, you're to remove that influence from your life. To them, they were to put him to death. That's not what we're to do. (laughs) You'll be removed from the influence of other people if you do that, you know. But you are to remove the influence of those false things from your life. You're not to study it and become an expert in it. Just remove that influence out from under you. You say, well, why? Is God insecure? Is God insecure that he can't have us learning other things? Or, or are Christians insecure that, that we're, oh, we're, we only read the Bible? No, 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 no. Here's why. And the answer is there in verse 5 again. Because their intent, the intent of the false, is to destroy you. That's the intent of the lie. It's to pull you away from the Lord and away from the things of God and to bring you in a place of danger. That's what he says. He says that they are seeking to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt. And so you're to remove that influence out from your life. And so he goes on and he describes that in the rest of the chapter. We come to chapter 14 now and we get into the dietary laws. The laws of uh, what they were to eat, what was clean and what was not clean. And, uh, and so he begins in verse 1, kind of with this parenthetical statement here. He says, for you are the children of the Lord your God. And that's a huge statement. We almost could breeze over that as an introductory phrase. But if you really think about what is being said there, is that you are not a child of this world. And neither are you the child of the evil one. But you are the children of the Lord your God. Where he's going with this is that as children of the Lord our God, we are to be different. We're not to bear the likeness of those that are the children of this world or the children of the wicked one. But we're to bear in reflection the image of our Father because we're the children of the Lord. And then he says, you shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. He gives an example of that in his first case by the the outlook or the attitude that the believer in God has towards death is to be completely different than the way the world views death. The Apostle Paul said that We, when someone dies, when a believer dies, we do not sorrow as the world sorrows. We sorrow because we've lost someone, but our sorrow is selfish in nature because we no longer get to enjoy that person's company. But Paul says that we don't sorrow for them because they aren't dead. They've passed into glory and they're with the Lord. And so the hope that we have with Christians is that death is not done, but death is a door that brings us from this life of cursed brokenness. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so death is a completely different thing for you and I than it is for the world. And our attitude towards death should be different than the world. But not just in death, he gives that example, but our outlook on everything in this life should be different from that which the world has. Because we have the truth about those things. Our attitude towards money should be different than the world's. Our attitude towards success and what defines success should be different than what the world's is. Our attitude towards what's important and towards priorities and towards family and towards values. All of those things should be different because we're children of the Lord our God. 
He says, for you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself. Now, doesn't that complement each one of us? That we're to be, and you know what, though? It's real, isn't it? That when the world looks at a true Christian, what do they think? They think we're strange. They think we're nuts. It took me years to accept that. I used to say for, for a long time, I said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I hate them. You know, <laughs> because we're so weird, you know. But it's true. He says that you're a peculiar people. For those that don't understand the things of God, for, to, to look into the life of someone that does and see the way that we live and see our hope in something that we can't see, it doesn't make sense. It short circuits their mind, you see. But it's what we're to do. We're not supposed to just blend in with them because we don't want to be peculiar. No, you're peculiar. So am I. (laughs) He says he's chosen you to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. And then he gets into this whole arena of the dietary laws. Now, the dietary laws were of the utmost importance to the Israelites. I mean, you would think by the emphasis that they placed upon the dietary restrictions, you would think that these were the epicenter of all that Judaism was. Interesting, there's only 18 verses. I mean, there's 18 verses here given to the dietary laws, and yet it was so significant to them. Everything was all about the dietary laws. You say, well, why? Why did they make such a big deal about something that was so minuscule in terms of the amount of scripture really given to it. Here's why. Because it's the most outward and the most apparent of all religious practice. In other words, you can appear very spiritual, even if inwardly your heart is not close to the Lord, you can appear religious and spiritual by just adhering to these dietary laws. Jesus indicted the Pharisees. He said that they were hypocrites because they would strain at a gnat, but they would wink at a camel. In other words, if they were riding along or walking along and they accidentally inhaled a gnat, a little tiny flying bug, they would make this huge gag show that they needed to get it out of their system because they ate something unclean. But yet then they would go behind closed doors and they would barbecue a camel. You know, a whole, uh, the entirety of an unclean beast, and they would eat that where no one else could see. And he says that they were hypocrites because they were exploiting the dietary laws in such a way that they would appear to be more than what they were. And yet what we learn in the New Testament and through the teachings of Christ is that the dietary laws were never about physical health. Yeah, there were physical health advantages to them. But that wasn't the primary intent behind why God gave them. Jesus explained that in Matthew chapter 15. Let me read it to you. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said this. He said, you hypocrites. I love saying that. Isn't it so easy to say? (laughs) Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, This people draws near unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. 
Listen, now here it is, verse 11. Not that which goeth into the mouth defiles a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? I mean, you just basically downplayed the epicenter of their religious practice, and they were offended by it. And so Peter sought clarity. He came back to Jesus and he said, Lord, now explain. We're by ourselves. What did you mean by this? So in verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, do you not understand that whatsoever enters in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the drought? Now, I don't need to expound on that for you to understand what it means. He says, but those things, listen, which proceed out of the mouth, out of the mouth, come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashen hands defileth not a man. It isn't about what you eat or the way you eat. It's about what comes out as a result of what you eat. And here's the point. Here's the whole significance of the dietary laws back in Deuteronomy. See, when you would eat food, when you and I eat food, what we are eating literally becomes a part of us. That's why the Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles, because they believed that they were becoming one with whoever they ate with. If you and I eat from the same loaf of bread, the same bread that is nourishing and building you up is building up the other person eating it, and so we're becoming one. And they wouldn't eat with Gentiles for that reason, because what we eat is what we become. And the whole idea is that it isn't just the food that we eat, literally, that becomes a part of us physically, but it's that which we take in also through our eyes and through our ears and through our mind. Those things become a part of us spiritually. And so the dietary laws point us to that fact. That it isn't about the food that we literally, hey, this body's already corrupt. Listen to my voice. We're dying. But the spiritual part of us is so much more valuable and we have the potential of corrupting it by the things that we partake of. And so the principle, the application of the things that we read here in chapter 14 is not about the physical of what's clean and what's unclean food-wise, but rather what are the principles about what we should allow to feed us and assimilate with our being and reflect itself in who we are and the type of people we are. So what are the principles? I'm not going to try to even say the names of these animals because I can't. But there's basically three principles, and then we'll close this Bible study, three principles that he gives to us here that help us to understand what is clean and what is unclean in that which we allow to influence our lives. The first one is there in verse 6, if you look at it. He says, and every beast or animal that parts the hoof, meaning that the toe is divided, you know, like that, get a visual, every beast that parts the hoof, and cleaveth the cleft unto two claws, and that cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall you eat. 
In other words, the thing that qualified a meal or an animal as clean was if it met two qualifications. Number one, it parts the hoof, and number two, it chews the cud. You say, great, well, that lends me great insight for my life. Thank you very much. Let's pray. No, no, no. What do these things mean? Well, first of all, to chew the cud. I looked up those words. Do you know that the word chew, in the Hebrew language, it's the only time that that word is translated that way. That Hebrew word is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's only translated chew in relationship to this concept. Do you know what it means? The word, it's usually used, it means to offer up. And this is a great illustration. You're going to thank me for it. (laughs) But basically, to, 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 to chew means to bring up, to offer up, and the cud would be the substance of what was eaten. Now, if you've ever been around cows, if you know anything about cows, you know where this is going. They chew the cud. What does that mean? It means they eat, and then they swallow, and then they bring it up, and they eat it again. They, they chew it, and they'll do that multiple times. They'll chew the cud. They'll swallow it, and they'll bring it back up. They'll swallow it, and they'll bring it back up. The idea is that they are careful to fully digest and fully comprehend, if you would, what it is that they're eating And I don't know why they do it. I'm thinking that maybe after the sixth time they realize, you know what, this isn't good for me. Maybe they spit it out, you know. I don't know. But that was one of the things that God said he wanted. He said that they digest, that they discern, that they understand what it is that they're eating. And then the other thing is that they part the hoof. What is the parting of the hoof? It's that there is evidence that there is a separation in the walk. That when you look at that and you, let's say you you see the footprint of that animal and you're following behind it, there's evidence that there is separation. And that's the idea. I I remember reading The Pilgrim's Progress, and you you guys hear me talk about it all the time. It's my favorite book other than the Bible, you know. And and, and there's a point in that book where Christian and Hopeful are walking along and they're having a conversation and they're talking about a, a man named Talkative who had been a companion of Christian at one point along the journey. And, and, and Hopeful asks Christian, he says, well, why did you break fellowship with talkative? He seemed like a good fellow. He always talked about the Bible. He always talked about the things of God. So why did you leave him? Why did you break fellowship? And Christian said, because talk, yes, he did quite a bit. And he talked a lot and he knew his stuff, but he didn't depart from iniquity. And then Christian quotes this verse. And he says, well, did Moses speak of these as those that chew the cud, but part not the hoof. That is, they speak the things of God, but they do not depart from the way of iniquity. And that's about as good of an interpretation of that as I've ever heard or ever understood. Of what classifies something as unclean or something else as clean. Is does it line up with everything that God says? After being fully digested, is it clean? And does it lend itself to a separate life? Does it help me to grow closer to the Lord? Or is it just garbage? And so when we think about the things that we take in through our eyes, through our ears, and through our minds, is it clean? Does it bring me closer to the Lord? It's a great question to ask. The second law that he gives um, is basically given in verses 9 all the way through 19, and that is that they were not to eat scavengers you know raccoons things that just eat whatever 
is that that was unclean. And Christians are not to be that type. We're not to just eat, not physically, but spiritually. We're not to just take in everything. Well, I'll watch these movies and listen to that music and allow this influence to, and I'm just going to have a blended salad going on, helping me become who I'm trying to be in Christ, but I'm not going to care at all for what it is, if it's clean or if it's unclean. I'm just going to just, I'll take in as much as I can and no, no distinction. And God says, that's unclean. Not to, not to do that. That's not the way we're supposed to be. And then the third and the last verse that we'll look at tonight in verse 21 The third criteria, he says, and we'll read this verse, verse 21. He says, you shall not eat of anything that dies of itself. Roadkill, you know, or the thing that dies of natural causes, the animal. He says, you should, I love this. God has a sense of humor. Notice, he says, you shall give it to a stranger (coughs) that is in thy gates that he may eat it, or you may sell it unto an alien (laughs) <laughs> that is, a, you know, a, a Gentile. For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God, and then you shall not see the kid in its mother's milk, which is the foundation of the kosher laws. But here's, here's the idea behind this. You shall not eat of anything that dies of itself. I talk to, to new Christians all the time. And they'll say, hey, I just gave my life to the Lord. And there's this transformation that's taking place. My eyes are opened. I, I, I'm going to heaven. I know what life is all about. I have this one issue I have a question about, they'll say. They'll say, I have this DVD collection that's worth thousands of dollars. Or a CD collection. Or a closet full of water bongs. Or 60 pounds of pot. You know, what do I do with it? Now that I'm saved. It it died by itself. As soon as I gave my life to the Lord, those things just died. They're no longer a part of me. I, I, I don't need them. I don't want them. I can't have them. But what do I do with them? See, in the Old Testament, you could sell it to a Gentile. (laughs) Not in the New Testament. The rule for you and I in the New Testament, the scripture is Acts chapter 19. The revival was taking place in the city of Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul said that many, many who practiced curious arts and had things that they shouldn't have, says that they brought them together to the city center and they burned them in the presence of all. And the value was about 50,000 pieces of silver. That regardless of the value of how much it cost, we're not to spread the influence of ungodliness to others, whether they're saved or not saved. So we're not to eat of those things that died of themselves when we gave our lives to the Lord. And the reason is because we're to be different. That's the whole idea, is that we're not the world. We're not to act like the world. We're not to look like the world. We're not to behave like the world. We're different from the world. He goes on in the rest of the chapter, and you can read it, and he reinforces some of the teaching on tithing and how they were to deal with the tithe if they lived far from Jerusalem. Um, But he just reiterates things that we've already looked at, and we will uh, resume in chapter 15 next week. But as we close, let me say this, and, and, and as I'm saying this, the musicians can come. Oftentimes, when I teach my kids and we cover uh, a lot of ground, you know, sometimes we'll do half a book at once, just overviewing when I talk to them. Talk about many different topics like we did tonight. This wasn't about one particular topic. But oftentimes what I'll say to my kids is I'll say, listen, as as we wrap up our Bible study tonight, 
I want you to just think about in your own mind the thing that stuck out to you the most. What was the thing that as you were listening tonight to the word of God, that the Holy Spirit just arrested your attention or gave you perfect understanding or rubbed a sore sensitive spot or something in in your life? What is that thing tonight that you heard that the Lord brought to your attention that he is dealing with or seeking to work on in your life? Maybe the question for you is, do you possess your possessions or do your possessions possess you? Are you a person that can give to God out of thanksgiving? Or a person that hoards and you know that you're in bondage to the things that you have? Maybe the Lord would speak to you tonight about those things. Maybe tonight the question for you is, where are you truly at in the progress of your Christian life? Are you a babe? Are you a new believer just getting your feet wet in the things of God? That's okay. But don't stay there. Don't be what Paul would say, a babe that is a babe way too long. You know, you have need to be mature by this time, but you're still drinking the milk. Maybe you're a child. You're, you're that one. You're carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every spiritual book you read, you find yourself being swayed and believing. Every sermon you hear on Christian television or on the radio, you just automatically say, well, hey, they're a pastor. Maybe you're a full age. You know the word. You're grounded. Maybe the Lord is challenging you tonight. Saying, dig into the word. Be a student of scripture. Know the truth. Handle the bills, so to speak. Be familiar. Don't be deceived. Maybe the Lord might be speaking to you about something that you're allowing to influence your life. Some things maybe that are going in through the eye gate. Maybe something that's going in through the ear gate. Gossip. Worldly pop culturist stuff. Or maybe things that are filtering through the mind gate. Things that you're thinking about that you know are not building you up in the things of God. They're drawing you away. What would the Lord speak to you tonight? Let that be the thing that we pray in. And isn't God faithful to just speak individually to us the things that we need through his word? May God give us wisdom. May he keep us sensitive to his spirit as he moves within our lives, as we study his word. And so, Father, we thank you tonight for this privilege and for the grace that you give and the truth that you share. Be with us, Father. Establish your presence with us yet more and more. Help us to understand the things that we're hearing. Help us to grow closer and closer to you, especially as we see the days grow darker and darker. Be with us, Lord. Keep us by the power of your spirit in the grip of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.